0: You're listening to Travaux, The Current State. I'm your host, Kayleen Kosla, and today I'm joined by Travaux contributor, Priyam Akas. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the Biden administration's airstrikes in Syria, U.S. Iran relations, and international nuclear weapons agreements. Recently inaugurated, President Biden hit the ground running in taking
1: major foreign policy actions. Just last week, he authorized airstrikes against Iranian forces in Syria, signifying a major step in the degradation of U.S.-Iran relations. These actions, along with those the Biden administration might take in the future, will undoubtedly have broader implications for international law. One such effect is potentially influencing the enforceability of treaties on the non proliferation of nuclear weapons, namely the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons,
0: or the TPNW, which went into force this January. Priyam, can you start by telling us about the recent airstrikes against Iranian forces in Syria? On February
1: 25th, the Biden administration launched its first airstrikes in Syria and dropped seven 500-pound bombs on facilities used by militias thought to be backed by Iran. The strike was a response to a February 15th rocket attack in Iraq that killed a Filipino contractor and wounded four American contractors and a Louisiana National Guard soldier. Professor Tess Bridgman, a lecturer at UC Berkeley School of Law, is senior editor at the National Security Online Forum, Just Security, and previously served as special assistant to President Obama, associate counsel to the president, and deputy legal advisor to the National Security Council, where she covered the full range of issues relating to the national security and foreign policy of the United States.
2: At first, there doesn't seem to be too much of a a relationship between the recent strikes and the TPNW. I think most people are focused on were the strikes lawful as an international law matter and our domestic audience is also focused on should Congress have been consulted? uh, Is is the president within his authority to authorize strikes like this on his uh, Article 2 powers alone? or does it need statutory authorization, uh, particularly given the state actors involved? Um, if if we kind of though draw out the consequences uh, a, a little bit further, we can see, I think, uh, the, where the question might come into focus. So to the extent that other states might believe the strikes were not lawful, that in fact, there was not an imminent attack that the United States needed to prevent uh, with the use of force, uh, or that the, uh, the the attacks, for some other reason, didn't meet the necessity or or proportionality prongs of the use ad bellum, it could be seen as, unfortunately, yet another example uh, in in the history of powerful states being willing to bend the law in their favor. And I'm I'm not saying that that is necessarily where most states will come out on these strikes, but it's it's possible, given the uh, the lack of detailed factual reporting that we have to date on whether there was indeed an imminent attack that the United States needed to forestall, that the US could end up facing a good deal of criticism in that regard. The other kind of complicating factor here is that the United States used force on Syrian territory without the consent of the Syrian government, using an argument that a lot of other states Uh, don't support, which is that it is customary international law that to the extent a non-state armed group is using the territory of another state to launch attacks and is unable or unwilling to prevent those attacks from being carried out or to otherwise effectively address the threat, then the victim state of the attack is is within its right in exercising its inherent right of self-defense to use force in that third state. So in this case, that's Syria. That's a highly controversial theory of international law that many states have already openly criticized as it's been used by US administrations in the past. Um, so, in each of these ways, we could see a situation where the resort to force and the, the legal framework surrounding the resort to force is seen to be weakened. And unfortunately, while this grew to not surprise the world too much under the Trump administration, it It would come as a surprise or more of one if following that administration and seeking to restore the rule of law, uphold norms that had maybe been eroded over the past four years, even a new Biden administration might still be willing to stretch those limits. And to the extent the international community believes that there's a need to rein in powerful states that are willing to use force in ways that might seem to stretch international law, it could lend credence to those who argue that we need to, to take more radical steps to ensure that the, the ultimate form of the use of force, if you will, uh, the, the nuclear weapon cannot be used. So I think it's, it's a kind of a long and, and somewhat tenuous causal chain um, to get all the way to the nuclear weapons issue. Um, but it is something that, uh, that, you know, once you walk through those steps, we could see it, it having an impact potentially down the road.
0: Now, it's not necessarily new for the US to launch such airstrikes. In fact, the US frequently launched airstrikes in the Middle East, not only under the Trump administration, but under the Obama administration as well. The US has even attacked this very group before. Why is this airstrike controversial, or at least notable? While it wasn't completely out of the ordinary, the Biden
1: administration based its authorization of this airstrike as a forceful message to Iran on the assumption that the militia was backed by Iran. This was a really important event because it not only set the tone for the ways in which the Biden administration will handle Iran, but it also has far-reaching impacts on the broader international community. The Biden administration's decision to launch the airstrike is controversial because the U.S. already has heightened tensions with Iran, which are likely to have consequences for the enforceability of international law concerning the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. An increase in tensions makes the Biden administration less likely to successfully reinstate the Iran nuclear deal and come to an agreement with Iran on its nuclear program. Arguably, the decision to launch the airstrikes also illustrated that the Biden administration will not tolerate attacks by Iran-backed militias against American interests and allies, but is still open to talks with Iran. The attacks occurred at the Iraq-Syria border, but were technically still contained only in Syria. Therefore, the airstrikes did not cross the line in both a metaphorical and a literal sense, because it is clear that attacking Iraq in its own territory would have severely heightened tensions between the two countries.
2: It's not clear right at the moment uh, the extent to which these strikes uh, alone may have impacted the prospects for getting back into the Iran deal or the, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, as it's formally known. Even before these airstrikes, there was obviously a great deal of tension between Iran and the United States. Uh, Iran, of course, has walked farther and farther away from its nuclear commitments, but only after the Trump administration uh, unceremoniously withdrew without uh, without any provocation from the Iranian side. And the Biden administration had yet to take any really meaningful, tangible steps to show good faith in terms of bringing our own uh, our own actions back in line with our commitments under the JCPOA. So even before the strikes, we faced this uh, really tense situation. Um, meanwhile, uh, the the fact that the administration has said that these attacks. Uh, were against Iranian-backed militias exacerbates the situation. So in the War Powers letter to Congress, in the Article 51 notification to the United Nations, you saw that phrase repeated, the Iranian-backed militias phrase, when in fact the Pentagon had earlier identified the uh, the targets of the strike as two particular armed groups, KH and KSS, Qateb Hezbollah and Khateb Saeed al-Shuhada, that uh, may indeed be Iranian-backed, uh, but unless they're claiming Um, that these strikes were in fact directed by Iran or that these groups are operating under the overall direction and control of the Iranian government. It does seem quite odd um, to be messaging the strikes as against Iranian backed militias. It seems to be sending a message to Tehran, not to the groups operating in the Iraq-Syria border region. So it's a, a, it's a tenuous situation exacerbated by the strikes. We've already, of course, seen a response to those strikes, although it's not entirely clear uh, whether the, uh, the strikes have been claimed by a particular group or whether we can attribute them to a particular group.
0: I'd now like to turn to the effects that Iran-U.S. relations might have on international law. But before we turn to that question, can you tell us a little more about the Iran nuclear deal? The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action,
1: or JCPOA, known widely as the Iran Nuclear Deal, was an agreement between Iran, the members of the UN Security Council, and Germany that was passed under the Obama administration in 2015. Under the JCPOA, Iran agreed to a number of commitments relating to its nuclear program, such as eliminating most of its stockpile of uranium, and allowing inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, to monitor Iran's uranium mines and mills and centrifuge production facilities. In exchange, the European Union, Security Council, and the United States agreed to lift all sanctions related to its nuclear program. While the agreement is non-binding, National Security Council Resolution 223 urged full implementation of the JCPOA, and set forth steps for eventual removal of Security Council sanctions on Iran. After the IAEA inspectors confirmed that Iran complied with their promises under the agreement, the United States, along with many European nations, released about $100 billion of Iran's assets. The United States also lifted sanctions on Iran's oil sector, which allowed Iran to increase its oil exports to nearly the level it was prior to the sanctions. Under the JCPOA, if a signatory suspects Iran of violating the agreement, then the UN Security Council may vote on whether to continue sanctions relief. In response to the sanctions reinstated by the United States during the Trump administration, Iran has breached several parts of the agreement, but said it would return to compliance if the sanctions relief agreed upon in the JCPOA were also provided. In April 2019, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani announced that Iran will install a cascade of 20 IR-6 centrifuges, and a June 2019 IAEA report notes that Iran has installed 33 IR-6 advanced centrifuges, but inspectors had access to all sites and locations they have requested to visit. On July 1st, 2019, Iran announced that it breached the 300-kilogram limit on uranium gas, enriched to 3.67%, and the IAEA confirmed that Iran had exceeded the limit. Iran is incrementally breaching the agreement by slowly increasing its number of advanced centrifuges and continuing to enrich uranium, now at 20% purity far above the 3.67% permitted under the JCPOA. Additionally, as of this February, Iran committed a new violation of the agreement by producing uranium metal. While the other signatories have condemned Iran for its breaches of the JCPOA, they have not reinstated sanctions and continue to express support for the preservation of the JCPOA. In August 2019, France even offered Iran a financial bailout package with a $15 billion letter of credit to compensate for the reduction in oil exports due to American sanctions in exchange for compliance with the JCPOA. As a presidential candidate, Biden condemned the Trump administration's decision, and as president, he claimed that the United States would rejoin the Iran nuclear deal, but the United States would not provide sanctions relief until Iran complied with all the terms agreed upon in the 2015 JCPOA.
2: But separately, we do seem to be seeing some movement towards the direction of at least an opening for talks. And that's in part because the US and the EU uh, have been willing to show some restraint towards imposing even uh, even further measures or harsh uh, harsher rhetoric yet towards Iran and allowing space for Iran and the IAEA, which is the uh, the nuclear watchdog to work out um, work out some arrangements going forward for how they're going to continue monitoring Iran's nuclear program despite it having stepped away from some of its commitments in response to the u s actions. So at the same time as we saw the strikes, uh, you know, seeming to poison the air uh, at least to. To, uh, to somewhat a, a further degree than it already has been, we also see some openings. So it's it's possible that, that both sides will be able to separate the issues and continue to move forward towards working on a, a mutual reentry of, of the JCPOA.
1: The recent airstrike is likely to make reinstating the deal significantly more challenging. On February 18, days after the rocket attack that motivated the airstrikes, the Biden administration invited Iran to formally begin talks on rejoining the JCPOA. Two days after the airstrikes, Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif condemned the U.S. airstrikes as illegal violations of Iraq and Syria's sovereignty. Zarif also denied any Iranian government responsibility for the attacks and expressed to the Iraqi government, quote, the necessity of action by the Iraqi government to identify the perpetrators of these incidents, end quote. The following day, on February 28, Iran rejected an offer to negotiate directly with the United States in an informal meeting on reinstating the JCPOA. It is unclear whether the airstrikes have impacted this decision. Iran has expressed an interest in seeing some sanctions relief before entering talks, as Iranian spokesman Saeed Khatibzada has stated, quote, there has been no change in the U.S. position and behavior yet, and the Biden administration has not only not abandoned Trump's failed policy of maximum pressure, but has not even announced its commitment to fulfilling its overall commitments as part of the nuclear deal, unquote.
0: Why do the U.S. and many other prominent governments want to reinstate the Iran nuclear deal? If the deal is not reinstated, Iran will likely continue
1: its trend of incrementally breaching the JCPOA, suggesting that the country might soon begin nuclear activities again. Beyond the obvious dangers that may result from an Iranian buildup of nuclear arms, Iran's breach might encourage other states to cease following international law concerning the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons.
0: Has there been any other action taken by the international legal community to curb what seems to be a dangerous path regarding nuclear power? Fortunately, the international community has made progress
1: in that regard. For example, the TPNW, which requires a complete ban on nuclear weapons, went into force this January. As of February 20th, the treaty had 54 state parties and 34 signatories. However, 42 states opposed the treaty, including all nine nuclear-armed states and all 30 states that are members of the NATO alliance. One of the primary concerns of the states that opposed the treaty as provided by the Independent Policy Institute Chatham House was that quote the TPNW does not reflect the contemporary security environment notably the increase in global tension over the past decade because it fails to include the main threat actors within that environment unquote without the JCPOA the world is even farther from achieving a ban on nuclear weapons because as long as the nuclear states oppose the TPNW, the treaty is essentially unenforceable.
2: We certainly have a lot of work to do um, I think before getting to the, the point where uh, where we're looking at a complete ban that's not to say that those whose, whose strategy is is saying we need to start with with the TPNW with with a complete ban uh, is not the right strategy but uh, there there's plenty of disarmament work to do, even if that is the overarching strategy. So I, I think, uh, you know, in, until we have situations like the Iran situation, like the North Korea situation uh, more under control, but but even, you know, kind of zooming out and looking at what we have going on here at home between the United States and and Russia, for example, we have issues that need to be resolved. Uh, and I, I hope uh, and and very much believe that the current administration is already and wants to continue working towards resolving those issues. Um, we have, I think, uh enough to do <laughs> uh, on the disarmament front uh, before we get to a complete ban. That I don't think states like the United States will anytime soon be looking to that as as the strategy. Um, certainly, uh, in terms of being what constrains other states, but even more fundamentally, being willing to, to accept those constraints on itself. I think that that might be quite a long time in coming if that day ever comes.
0: Thank you for listening. Trevo is brought to you by Veronica Bognat, And the members of the online team at the berkeley journal of international law if you enjoyed our podcast please subscribe and rate us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you have any questions comments or suggestions please write to us at berkeley.travo at gmail.com while we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insights Our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current.